Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There are musicians, raconteurs, performers, comedians, and there's Todd Snyder, who's all in one. Todd Snyder is one of the premier folk rock country artists in the world. He sold millions of records, topped critics' favorites lists for the last decade, performed or collaborated with John Prine, Billy Bragg, Jimmy Buffett, Robert Earl Keane, Widespread Panic. The list goes on and on. He's out with his first book, I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, Mostly True Tall Tales, offering tales of his comedic antics, rueful troubles, sharp-eyed observations, everything from pranking Jimmy Buffett on stage to taking a chance on a fan who would become his long-term tour manager. Todd Snyder joins us on the telephone. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Grateful to get Thank you. I uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us. Uh, sounds like the line's breaking up a little bit, so hopefully we'll be okay here. Oh, okay. Uh, that, I can hear you good. Yeah, that seemed Am I okay? A, yeah, that seemed a little better there. I wonder if we could we could start with uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, you, that's sure. the second chapter in, in the book. You're, um, tell me the story about how you came to, uh, to to know Jerry Jeff Walker, and then we'll go go from there. Well, I was I was a kid about 19, and I, I had just moved from Oregon to Texas, and I wanted to make up lyrics and be a band. And I met this guy named Frog, who, who was with me, and he listened to Walker, which was like the first time I'd really heard acoustic music besides, like, say, Heart of Gold. And I really fell for it really hard. And then we had to go see a show, and he got up, and he was singing about what I felt like I was living at the time. And I hadn't really realized that by listening to the record. But when I saw the show, I could tell that he was, at, at that time in his life, he was a singer, but but you could tell that he'd sort of been a hitchhiker and a sofa bummer and all that, a younger man. And I felt a real deep connection to it. And I also felt like in my life at that time, I was considered a freeloader. And that wasn't an easy badge to walk around with. But this guy, he make it look like if you learn three chords on a guitar, you could go from free loader to free spirit and go from people rolling their eyes at you to cheering at you. And and I already liked making up poems. And so it just it happened all in one night at Green Hall. I got just obsessed and I went the next morning and guitar and started learning to play and going to see him every, you know, at least two or three times a week and try to learn how to play like him. Mm. I would travel. And then, like five years later, I got a record contract and got to play a festival that he was at. I just ran up and hugged him and told him he was my king, and we've been friends ever since. He was nervous. I beat the, him in trivia yeah. contests. Oh, you do? Like, really? Like, I told him I loved him so much, and he was like, yeah, I don't know if everyone has all my, you know, I said, I got all your records, and I know everything about you. And he didn't believe me, but so we had a trivia contest about him, and I whipped him. <laughs> you, you knew more about, about him than, than he did. Yeah, he sure did. And that, now we're friends, and he'll call me from his hotel for lyrics. Like, he's like, I want, I want to play Hill Country Rain tonight, man. What's that last verse? That, that's my, that's as happy as I get, you know. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, he calls you to, to, to remind him of the verses. Uh, so yeah. uh, what uh, I think people who don't know Jerry Jeff Walker and, and maybe, you know, who, who don't know this type of music that much, they would probably know that he wrote Mr. Bojangles. Yeah, maybe, you know, or at yeah. least they'd know that song, right? Right. You could say, he wrote it. Uh, and they probably would know it from a version that somebody else sang. Sure, yeah, either 
Nitty Gritty Dirt Band or Sammy Davis Jr., yeah. I would imagine. So what what is it about, uh, you, you've talked a little bit about, I wonder if you could expand on that. What what, what is what was it about Jerry Jeff Walker that's still to this day that, that's, that appeals to you so much? It's, it just seems so genuine to me. And as a kid growing up in Oregon, all we really got to see was the Sammy Davis Jr. version or the or the um, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band version. And so and it wasn't until I got to Texas that I could see that you could be a musician and, and have a, a nice life without uh, everyone knowing who you are or like if you I like you could make up songs that didn't sound like songs on the radio and then not get on the radio and still be a singer, you know, like John Prine. And when I saw that, that was the job that that looked like a job I could fall in love with, mm-hmm. you know, like because you could do it in the bar. I was a busboy at a in the bar singer, and I thought, well, shoot, and it's not a bad job. And then I would love to go to work, you know. Because I'm always late for work because I'm banging on my guitar. Right, right. So if, I, so if I could fuse the two, I would never be late for work again, yeah. which didn't happen or work out that way. But. Right. You, one, of, one of your first breaks, you wrote a song called Bus Tub Food. <laughs> Tell me about that. that the, was, yeah, I was working at the, it was a place called Peppers, and I was the busboy, and I, and. I didn't have any money, and so if somebody didn't eat all something, you know, if it looked like they didn't touch it or, you know, if it looked okay, I'd go bust the table and take it back there and eat it. And and uh, my manager caught me doing it and laughed and laughed, and then I, I don't know why, why, but I knew like two or three chords on the guitar, and I could play Pink Houses, and I think I could play Good Love. And I just picked up the guitar and started singing Bust Tub Stew. Mm. <laughs> and by the time I got done, I was like, well, that's a song, I guess, right? I mean, I was looked at my friends. I was like, was that a song? Yeah. <laughs> that's a song, right? I mean, why is that not a song? And then we all agreed that it was probably a song. You know? And then I thought, well, then I make up, and that's what I do now. Uh, some of the lines here, uh, they only took about a bite or two. I know, I know, but at <laughs> least it's food, bus tub stew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and people seem to respond I, to that. It's not blowing in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it really didn't improve much from there. Yeah. It is, it is a slice of life, I guess. Yeah. Is that what, what do you, I mean, uh, the, the publicity materials, I think, capture well kind of the range of what you do, musician, raconteur, performer, comedian. Uh, I, I guess in, in, in my mind, you're a storyteller. Uh, some of them. Yeah. Exist, so what What is it in your mind? Um, I, I like being called anything. You know, um, I, I think I I would agree with you that it's a bit like a storyteller. Like I knew when I was young. Like another thing about Jerry Jeff was I also liked Hunter Thompson and Mark Twain, and that like I thought that that could be something I could get into. And I realized that this the guy with the acoustic guitar and the harmonica was kind of that. You know, like. Um, you know, Mark Twain was three chords from being Jerry Jeff Walker, you know? Mm, right. And, um, so, and then Buffett is, is kind of that, you know, and really they, I guess they call it a scamp, which is some guy who just gets over by opening his heart, you know, mm. in some fashion or another, you know, like I'll be vulnerable and you guys can tip me and then that'll be what I contributed. Right. <laughs> but you, you never, you didn't have aspiration to get on the radio and get big and get famous or was that part of it no no i never saw that as 
I don't. I wouldn't say it, it didn't look fun. It just didn't look like. I don't know. Maybe it didn't look like fun, or or it didn't look feasible, or it looked like hard work, or or. And then I I also didn't feel like naturally when I picked up a guitar that the songs I sang, um, sounded like songs that would be on the radio. And I and I thought, if I can just get over anyway, I don't mind. I don't, I'm not looking for for just more than to get by a little. Right. And so it seemed like at a certain point it was presented like that if I didn't change, I wouldn't go hungry. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just hang like this. Instead of trying to figure out how to change the way I make up songs, which I think would have been less fun. Yeah. Then I think if I was going to change, it's like if I was going to change the way I made up songs so that I could be more successful, then maybe I, I would rather be a doctor. Yeah, very different path. <laughs> yeah, this is a stupid uh, line of work to come into for reasons of like that. You know? Yeah. I wonder so, if you're like, I want to figure out how to be successful. There's so many other venues that will do that and you can get all kinds of glory and money yeah. and it's for sure. This is mm-hmm. even the cats that go to number one flame out on the road if they don't like it. Yeah. That's, I guess that's a factor, isn't it? That's sort of the stereotypical story. People are going for the fame, but they find out they don't like the life. Yeah. And then they get out there and go, you know, you have to sing two hours a night, every night. And if you don't love it, if you can't, if it if it doesn't put you into some sort of trance, if it's not your yoga and your meditation, it's just going to be your misery. Mm-hmm. So that's why some famous people go home. You know, you meet see some kids who had three hits in a row and went home. It's like they didn't didn't like that nervous feeling. Yeah. That didn't like didn't like reading about what people thought he had done. Didn't like. Uh, hearing that the song wasn't on the radio anymore, you know, it all hurt too much. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you still get from it? Do you, do you get that nervous feeling. You You like that. You like. I guess you. Yeah. You tell stories on stage. It. What and the energy from the audience. What What is it about performing that appeals to you? I don't know. I think I was born to it. You know, I like that. I like getting nervous before the show. It's part of my favorite part of the day. And then, and then, um, then the when that nervousness pops. That's like about a song and a half into the show. It just feels like as calm as I'll get in my life. Mm-hmm. And then o- over the years, um, I've learned from different, like, um, I, I'm mostly from like surfers. I don't know how to surf, but there's a real zen. There's a way to turn it into a thing that can't go wrong, you know, like I've mm-hmm. before. And I've been for Hootie and the at the height of their game alone. And I played a song that sounded country, and they started to not boo boo, but you could hear them, and and it was jolting and invigorating, and I felt like my heart was flying wide open, and I didn't feel like I was failing at all. I felt like I was doing what I was born to do. Yeah. I I would do that again in five seconds for free. You you mentioned that you you got got some booze back. You you didn't have the negative reaction, perhaps I would, um, it, and I, I think. You you are a bit of a provocateur, right? There, there's something. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah. I, I I don't mind when the crowd turns on me, and I, I don't mind leaving even if I'm not having fun, and then then having them shove the bus around. It's all just fun to me, and I didn't get into it to be a professional. I got into it to be a disaster. Hmm. I didn't get into it to make my family proud. I got into it to embarrass them. 
Hmm. I want to be like a kid in an ACDC parking lot. And I know that's not very American dreamy, but if there was one thing I could do with my life, with this small little audience I have, if I could reach out to burn out kid that's just bitten in in high school and he loves Metallica and try to say, you know, I, I see you as a, like a, um, as as uh, I, I prefer the, I prefer that kid to the quarterback, and I don't care I don't I don't care if someone thinks that. Hmm. You you said something interesting in a, um, an interview I think recently. You have a project um, called uh, Hardworking Americans. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. This this came from a conversation you had with uh, with a friend who who said you spend a lot of time with your heroes and you avoid your peers. So you went out looking for. He said, "What? Who are your peers that you like?" And so you chose a few of them. Yeah. Uh, tell me why you chose that that name for the band, Hardworking Americans. Well, it's sort of based on what I was just saying about that kid, the Metallica parking lot kid. And I feel like there's a certain a lot of us in the band do too. We're we're all people that you would find. Our entire band is somebody you would find at a widespread panic show, and our bass player is in widespread panic. And that crowd in particular, I would not think that most people are Americans, but I would. And I feel like there's also a lot of people in our country that we almost need to villainize and, and or make fun of, like, say, when that young girl, Britney Spears, was hitting that car with her umbrella and her head all shaved. I think that makes us all feel good. And not, and I like to think of those people as hardworking Americans too. I think Lindsay Lohan is an incredibly hardworking American, and I think that uh, Dennis Rodman and a lot of people that we just seem to need to feel better than, and then you know, burnouts and uh, strippers. Uh, I'd rather my daughter strip for men than cheer for them. I would, and I don't care who thinks that's weird. I have my own values. And I like to be part of a band that stands up and sings for uh, strippers and uh, uh, people that might be considered degenerate. Mm. Uh, I'm not. I'm not for someone that would reach out and, and hurt another human being. But that's where I draw the line, and I and I don't draw it any further over. Mm. And I'd like to consider uh, hardworking Americans as as deadheads almost, mm. or or that kind of character, and not necessarily. And that's not to say that I don't think that people who like country music or go to the tea party or that go to church, uh, that they're not hardworking Americans. I think they are, too. I just I just in general sort of pretty well across the board disagree with sort of superstitious type stuff or patriotism. And I'm all for people that don't that like those things, but I don't. And I, I sing for people that feel boxed out because they don't subscribe to those things. Mm. You mentioned also, uh, you know, uh, you could continue that list, uh, Tanya Harding, Mike Tyson. Yeah, Um, all of them. I love Mike Tyson. And I sing a song about him that I know that he got to hear on a a talk show, and I'm really hoping that he didn't think I was making fun of him because I really think that's a good example of a really good American that, that I hope, you know, if he raped a girl... Then I, I absolutely positively just think that is despicable and evil, and and I, you know, he insists that he didn't. So I take him at his word, and he and he paid his price. But other than that, outside of that thing, which is criminal, 
Every other single solitary thing that he did right up to biting that guy's ear, I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was cool. I think he's wise. I think it was wise, turned on reporters and swore on TV. I think he played his cards right. I think he surfed the wave really well. I so you Especially see, for where he came from. Yeah, that, that, that's that's surprising. I think it would not be the majority view. Uh, I think the majority view would be he's he's a troubled soul. Yeah, you see, he's yeah, wise. And I certain. don't. I don't think uh-huh. most people would ever be able to understand what it felt like to be the heavyweight champion, or to be able to just walk to your door and think, "There's nobody that I'm going to come across today that I couldn't just beat senseless if I had to." That's a that's a pressure none of us have ever felt or heard. Muhammad Ali dealt with the same pressure, and people got just as mad at him and thought, and now they look back at him like a hero that stood his ground. But my father thought that somebody should have beat him up and shot him, you know, for for the way he tried to ruin America. And I think Mike Tyson was a bit of a rock and roll star. But I also think when I listen to his interviews, I think he's a deeply philosophical guy, and I thought he was a lot smarter than the people interviewing him a lot of the times. Hmm. Mostly just because of his experiences in life. If you just joined us, we're talking with Todd Snyder, who is a musician, rock and tour performer. Um, he is one of the premier folk rock country artists in the world. He's sold millions of records, top critics' favorites list for the past decade. Performed with uh, people like Yonder Mountain String Band, Jerry Jeff Walker, one of his heroes, Loretta Lynn. He continues to tour. He's uh, he's going to be going out on tour. Uh, I think. Uh, resuming in about a month or so, and lives yeah. in East Nashville, uh, Tennessee. One of his uh, latest projects we've just been talking about, uh, hardworking Americans. Uh, we'll uh, continue this discussion with uh, Todd Snyder, talk about uh, some more stories, talk a little bit more about uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, and uh, he's gotten to uh, to know and, uh, and perform with uh, some of his, his idols, John Prine and uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett gave him an early break. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rossetto Casper. This week we look at mindfulness in the kitchen with news anchor Dan Harris. He's author of 10% Happier. He started out skeptical but ended up seeing tangible differences in his life. Well, be sure to join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Athletics, offering Aggie 2014 football season tickets. Information available online, over the phone, or in person at the Athletics Ticket Office in the D. Glenn Smith Spectrum, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We're talking with Todd Snyder on Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. His new book... It's a collection of uh, fascinating stories. It's called I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, Mostly True Tall Tales. Stories from uh, growing up, stories from his life in music. Todd Snyder is one of the premier folk rock country artists in the world. He's uh, performed with uh, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Robert Earl Keane, John Prine, Jerry Jeff Walker. The list goes on and on. Um, And uh, he is uh, heading back out on tour soon. The book is out and available from uh, Da Capo Press. I never met a story I didn't like, mostly true, tall tales. Todd Snyder joins us on the telephone. You can join this conversation if you'd like with a question or comment for Todd Snyder. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number. 1-800-826-1495. 
or email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Todd Sunder, I wonder if you would tell me about uh, Kent Findlay. A certain point, he he owned, a, yes. I think, a bar where you where you performed. Love him, sure. And he, hey, he first, before I do though, yes, I want to I want to thank you for letting me be on. I especially thank you for saying so many nice things about me. You letting me say such opinionated stuff on the radio, and I wanted to say before I talk about Kent to anyone that's listening, uh, I want you to know that I know that I'm not saying my opinions because they're smart or because people should know them. I, I get to say my opinions because I rhyme them sometimes. Yeah. I'm not even rhyming them now. But I just... Let's see, you're, you're breaking up a little bit. I don't know if you can get oh, closer to the phone or... Uh... Yeah, I, I don't think that they're smart opinions. I just think I share them because it's my gig too. And I also take, I like to let people know that I'm, I don't to change minds. I just try to ease my own. You know. Mm-hmm. What is it about so, that? Anyway, thank you for listening to me. Yeah, uh, before hey, we Kent get... Finley, yo, Kent, I'm yeah. sorry. You want me to go on or did, did, uh, did I, just had I talk a, about... I had, a, I had a question based on what you just said. Um, yeah. It's... Uh, I think you, at a certain point in this bar, you, you met a, uh, a songwriter, and uh, you got angry because he was singing a Willie Nelson song. Uh, then, yeah. then somebody told you, no, he wrote that song for Willie Nelson... That's kind of yeah. when a, a light bulb went off in in your head. It, you, you know, you you put your thoughts down in rhyme, and and you could maybe make a living of that. Maybe beyond make a living, maybe maybe a life yeah. out of that. Yeah, I was shocked. At first, well, it was a songwriter night, so we were open mic, so we were supposed to be playing our own stuff. And this guy gets up and does a Willie song, and I'm supposed to go next. I'm like, this isn't fair. And then. And yeah, it hit me when I was watching him, and then and then I got up after, and the whole time I was singing, I kept I couldn't keep but wondering what he did all day, you know. And um, afterwards, I asked him how I could be better at what I did, and uh, he said, "Well, first I asked him how I could make a living like he did, and he said I had to get better. But how do I get better?" And he said there was no real way, but that he had met a guy one time that told him that if he kept his life in a situ- situation where he could always pick the thing that he owned and be moved out of wherever he was inside of 15 minutes, and more importantly, if he always kept his life in a situation where things like that happened to him every once in a while and he would be forced to execute that maneuver, that his life might not go so well, but that he would always be getting better at making up songs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true, but I really did uh, buy into it. and. It takes me a lot of discipline for my life to be as uh, the way it is, <laughs> yeah. as as uh, structuralist as it is. So you've you've tried this, and do you think it's helped your songwriting? I do, and I'm I am sad to say that t- today, at the age of forty-seven, it would take me a lot longer than fifteen minutes yeah. to get out of this house. <laughs> but I stayed that way till I was uh, thirty-nine, thirty-eight. You know, I stayed. Um, well, I, I can't remember when I bought the house, but even then, I was, I'm pretty much on the road all the time. And, and you know, I guess I suppose even if this house caught fire, I'd just run out. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about uh, uh, tell me about Kent Finley. The, the, he he introduced you to some music you hadn't known. He told you, I think, a compliment that you didn't know how big a compliment it was at the time. That right. you, that you reminded him of John Prine, Chris Christopherson. These are people you, you didn't know at the time. Uh, didn't know their music. Right. And Kent is a is Texas and what I would call like a voice in the wilderness where he's had a lot of 
but it's amazing how how that happens because he lives out in the woods and sounds like maybe we had some phone problems uh, we'll yeah we'll uh, we'll go to a break here and and try to fix that You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, unfortunately, I have to report we've lost Todd Snyder. Um, his, uh, his phone died, apparently. And we, our backup numbers are not working, so uh, we uh, apologize for that. And at a future occasion, we uh, perhaps will try to get uh, Mr. Snyder back on. Hope you enjoyed the conversation up to that point. Uh, the book's uh, a very interesting one. Check it out. I never met a story I didn't like. Mostly true tall tales. Uh, Todd Snyder. Um, and his uh, website, uh, Todd Snyder, Snyder, by the way, with an I, dot net. So we are uh, going to uh, call an audible, to uh, to use a football term. We will uh, go to an interview from uh, oh, a few years back, a couple of years back, that I did with uh, NPR's Michelle Norris on the occasion of uh, a book, a memoir, and uh, musings about race. Of course, she's gone on to do a very interesting project called The Race Card Project. Uh, so here is my conversation with NPR's Michelle Norris. Uh, so you, uh, as I understand it, you set out to uh, write a book on, uh, on race relations based on uh, conversations you had with people living in York, Pennsylvania, uh, and, and how people talk about race, and it turned into, uh, turned into a memoir. How, how did that happen? <laughs> An accidental memoir. <laughs> I, I set out to listen to the conversation in the country about race because I, I covered when I was covering the presidential campaign. I sensed that people were talking about race and thinking about race in a, in a slightly different way, but it was just it was more of it. It was percolating at a different level, and I wanted to capture some of that. And some of the profound discoveries I, I, I made in this book that my father had been shot years ago and never talked about it, shot by white police officers in segregated Birmingham. My grandmother worked as Aunt Jemima, again, never talked about I thought at first that they would just be anecdotes in this book. And since I was calling for a conversation, an honest conversation, I thought I would be honest about some of the things I discovered in my own family. But I couldn't, but I couldn't let those stories go. I, I found that I was obsessed with trying to learn more about what my father experienced, learn more about what the country was like in the mid-1940s and the 1950s, because I wanted to understand them, and I wanted to understand the, how they lived their lives and how that impacted me. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about where we've come as a country. And I realized at some point that I was writing the wrong book, and so I pivoted, and I decided to, to dive headlong into the into my family history, and that's how I wound up writing this memoir. This story about your father, um, representative of, of things that were going on at that time, um, black soldiers who'd fought for their country coming back and encountering this institutional racism that just uh, seemed to pick up where it, where it left off. Yeah, yeah. In fact... In some ways, it was um, uh, even a, a, a little bit stronger, the, the, the wall of well, white resistance that they faced. Um, there was a little bit more fortitude to that, because I think what those men represented was something that was probably pretty scary at the time. Um, black men who had gone into the military, in some cases, if they were in the Army, may have learned how to use firearms. They returned to this country with a, a certain pride in the way that they carried themselves. They were wearing military uniforms, so when they had left, they were 
subordinated in almost every way, particularly in the South. But when they returned, their shoulders were back and their heads were held high, and, and not everybody liked that. And then on top of that, they were trying to assert their right to vote. They had fought for democracy overseas, and they returned, and they said, you know, we want a taste of democracy back home. And, uh, and, and America on the whole said, well, wait a minute, no, not yet. And so it was a period um, full of surprises for me. I was surprised to learn that my father was shot by a police officer in this period um, when black men were going to the courthouse every day trying to assert their right to vote. But I was astonished, absolutely astonished, to look back and realize how much violence was directed at returning black veterans. This is a history on the whole that we just don't talk about. It happened not just in the South. It was all over the country. They were beaten, maimed, uh, castrated, lynched, blinded, and in some cases killed. The title, The Grace of Silence, uh, that refers, I think, to your father's decision not to, not to burden you with this. Yeah, and, and, and again, he was representative there as well, Tom. I, I spoke to many other veterans who were marginalized in the military because of these strict racial codes and then marginalized when they returned to the United States and in some cases brutalized. And on the whole, they stopped talking about it. My father had every reason to be angry at the world, and he decided not to pass on that anger to his kids. Uh, one of the questions you wrestle with, what's been more corrosive to the dialogue on race, uh, things said or unsaid? You know, I pose the question, and I don't pretend to have the answer, mm-hmm. because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I know that we can't uh, go back and undo what's already happened, but we do have the opportunity to shape the future. And I think our future will be better and our future will be brighter if we are unafraid to sit down and talk about this very difficult subject. People often shy away from discussions about race for all kinds of reasons. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I encourage people to do that. I hope this book will will spark conversations, not big public forums necessarily. That's great. I mean, I'm traveling the country. I'm doing... Uh, 30 city book tour and and I will be speaking in some of those forums but I also want people to think about this and perhaps talk about it in their more private spaces at the dinner table in the workroom at the college dormitory and that's where I think that's where I think profound uh, conversations can take place and I also hope Tom that it encourages people to reach back and to capture their history because you know as I mentioned and people looking back on the color line and, and, and people who lived on either side of the color line in the period, really, you know, when America was going through a rough, rough history and trying to figure out how, you know, how to, when the, when the walls of segregation fell and people were still trying to figure out what integration really meant, people really didn't talk about that as they look back because it's painful. And so as a result, we don't really have access to our full history. You know, in that sense, there's a a universal thread that runs through the heart of this book, the question, how well do you really know the people who raised you, and whether it's, you know, racial tumult that they experienced, or whether they, you know, survived the Holocaust, or whether they, you know, fled the Dust Bowl, whether they um, lived a hard life and, and, and chose not to tell their children the full story of their experiences. You know, if you don't figure out how to capture your history, sometimes it, 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 it sometimes you lose that opportunity when your elders die, when the loved ones leave, they take their history with them. And so I hope 
that the book will also encourage people to think about their family legacies, capture those stories before it's too late. And as you, uh, you know, your father made a decision there, um, it, it might be representative of, of many parents. As a child, if you could have it to do over again, what, what would you, I guess you'd open up a dialogue and ask some questions? Well, I don't know that I'd have the, the, the fortitude or the intellect to, to have this conversation with him when I was a child. I was in my early 20s when Dad died. He died in 1988. I was already working as a journalist then. But I, I, would, I would ask him more questions. And, you know, and, and, and oftentimes it doesn't have to be deeper investigative questions. I mean, just simple questions. Tell me about your life. Is there anything about your life that I don't know? Anything you, you, you know, you, you want to tell me, I mean, a series of small, simple questions. I yearn to be able to talk to him about some of this. I, 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 one of my great regrets is that um, perhaps there was something that he wanted to tell me and didn't feel that he had the opening to do that. And I think about that very much as I raise my own children. You know, it's, it's going to be hard to tell them some things, but I want to be accessible to them, and I pray that I have the courage I pray that they have the courage to ask me questions, and I pray that I have the strength to be honest with them when they do. Very good. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Tom, thank you. And bye now. That is NPR's Michelle Norris, a uh, conversation from a couple of years ago. Uh, our guest for the hour that we had booked uh, is not with us because uh, the, the phone connection died. We can't uh, reach him, so we apologize for that. Todd Snyder, the book is I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, Mostly True Tall Tales. We'll try to get him on at, on a later occasion for a, a complete conversation. Before that, I want to let you know about an interesting program for tomorrow. Joseph Tainter, Utah State University professor, will be with us in studio. Uh, his very interesting book from a couple of years ago is very apropos today. It's called Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. And he poses the question in this book, the more energy we have and the more problems our societies confront, the more we grow complex and require still more energy. So how did our demand for energy, our technological prowess, and the resulting need for complex problem-solving and the end of easy oil conspire to make the Deepwater Horizon oil spill increasingly likely, if not inevitable? And what do we do for the future? We'll discuss the Deepwater Horizon and our energy dilemma today, the book Drilling Down, and the author, USU professor Joseph Tainter. That's the program for tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Richard Ratliff. Have you noticed? Our politicians in Washington have a difficult time getting along. It's called gridlock. Actually, since this label first appeared, the situation has gotten worse. Now we should call it vicious gridlock or terminal gridlock. How about family feud? If things weren't so seriously wrong, it might be funny. Think what Will Rogers could have done with today's Washington. But few are old enough to remember Will Rogers. Just like few are old enough to remember what it was like for our political parties to work together rather than stand across the aisle and shout at each other. Don't get me wrong. I both pity and admire today's politicians. How can they hope to solve the country's problems? They must get elected, negotiate the demands and threats of their own p political parties, as well as the opposition, and figure out where they stand facing confusion everywhere they turn. Politics often seem more focused on battle than public service. Then our politicians have to endure an overbearing press hungry for scandal and controversy. Villains have become as popular as our heroes. 
Who are the villains anyway? Who are the heroes? Sometimes it's hard to tell. And something else. Everybody now seems to know how to fight. They know the rules and tricks of engagement. It is interesting that an illegal immigrant, fresh across from the border, can plug into the advocacy industry here and fight the government of the United States to a standstill. Some would say that that is ideal. Everyone should be able to fight for what they want. Well, we're just about there, folks. And where is that? It is called gridlock. Is this really where we want to be? Everybody able and willing to shut down the system to get what they want at whatever cost. If I can't have mine, nobody gets anything. Sounds like Congress, doesn't it? And who pays the price? All of us. Here's the kicker. Nobody says they want it that way, and everybody says they want the problem solved. If nobody wants gridlock and everybody wants something better, why can't we do something differently? We know better, but we do not want to change, because change shakes the ground we stand on. One of our biggest fears is earthquakes. That would knock us right over and bury us in the rubble. We learned in kindergarten to share and to be nice. In high school, to win the trophy. In university, we learn the rules of the game and how to play better. Later, we learn that rules don't matter. The point is to fight for what we want and win however possible. No wonder we adults long for kindergarten again. But we all know that real life is a dogfight. You can't change that. Do you believe that? I don't. We can change if we want to. But how? We must change our minds from what is best for me to what is best for us. You see, what is best for us can be best for me. There's no earthquake there. And what is best for us requires us to work together, not against each other. If we don't work together, we'll wind up in gridlock, or worse, eventually subject to someone else strong and mean enough to break the gridlock by force. They'll break it with our insistence because we will declare that doing something is better than not being able to do anything. Education, immigration, a nuclear Iran, unsustainable debt, corruption, a toxic environment, our unhealthy appetites, the breakup of the family, discrimination, whatever the problem, we can solve it if we work together. Good relationships solve problems. Bad relationships create problems. Fighting worsens bad relationships, and as we become better at fighting, bad relationships become gridlock. We must want to fix the underlying problem enough to change. We know how. Remember kindergarten? Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 